Good morning, everyone. Glad to see each of you here. Probably the only scripture I may, I will quote, hopefully accurately, a number of scriptures, but just one um, as a text for today is found in Titus, the second chapter, the 11th through the 15th verses. Titus is a young pastor, along with Timothy, that Paul wrote what are called the pastoral epistles to young preachers, instructing them, um, encourage them encouraging them, and so forth. <clears throat> Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Those verses contain virtually everything the Bible says and that I hope to say this morning about the wonderful doctrine of grace. We sang about it. We use the term all the time. Grace is probably one of the most fundamental truths that sets apart Christianity from every other religion. Reportedly, C.S. Lewis, um, in the previous 20th century, writer, thinker, Christian philosopher, was asked what sets apart Christianity from every other world religion? And he immediately answered one word, grace. Grace is the special, unique doctrine of Christianity. We need to define it. There are a number of different definitions, I guess you'd say. Some closer to being accurate, others a, a bit further away. But grace, in addition to being unmerited or undeserved favor, is in a wider sense flowing from that undeserved favor. It is the love of God in action, both toward and in us. To 
draw us, as the words of this last song, to draw us to salvation. This is the great outpouring of love from an offended God to the offenders whom he wants to spare and wants to save and wants to bring back into relationship with him. A simple, another simple little definition of grace is that we deserve to have God be against us, but instead he's for us. That's a good practical definition of grace. We don't deserve, that's the whole point, we don't deserve the grace that God gives us. It's what makes it grace and makes it mercy. The real pinnacle of the revelation of God's grace, of course, is Jesus Christ coming into the world, clothed himself with human flesh and personality, walked and taught among us, and was ultimately crucified, dead, buried, rose again the third day, ascended into heaven, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That's the ultimate, final, blazing revelation of God's grace. Is comes to my mind Charles Wesley's him. Can, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou my God shouldst die? For me, that's grace. There's nothing like it. No other religion has anything comparable. Through Jesus, then, who is the pinnacle of the revelation of grace, and John the Baptist said of Jesus that he was the Father's Son, that we were to listen to him. And St. John, the writer of the gospel, said, the law came by Moses. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And said, we have seen him full of grace and truth. There are two kinds of grace, or at least two divisions that I want to look at this morning. And I realize, thinking about this and trying to organize scriptures and thoughts, this is a hopeless task this morning to ever try to get in one sermon. Grace. I could try, and we'd be here till maybe 1 o'clock, 
and you would not extend grace to me. You would leave. But two ways, two kinds of grace that I think might help us to understand it. One, there is unconditional, such a thing as unconditional and universal grace. Now, normally that's labeled prevenient grace. It's a theological ter term for the grace that precedes conversion. It is a massive subject, the grace of God that brings us, tugs at us, draws us, bringing us to salvation. First of all, when I say unconditional, what do I mean by that? It is freely bestowed without us needing to meet any kind of condition for it. We don't do anything to deserve it. It is freely given to us. It is given to us starting in the garden. In the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, grace came in because, number one, Though they had alienated themselves from God, he struck out after them. They didn't seek him. They had no ability to seek him. They had enslaved themselves in a moment to Satan. But God came to them and hunted them and called to them and said, Where are you? God doesn't come halfway or meet us in the middle kind of a thing. God comes all the way to where we are bound in sin by our own sinning and our own choice. He comes all the way to us in his effort to bring us back into a right relationship with Him. That grace of God seeking us before we ever seek Him is universal and unconditional. Now universal means, I was thinking about this this morning, and I, this is a, I'm pretty sure this is an accurate statement. There is no human being in existence, in all God's creation, including the spiritual world, there's no human being without grace, except for those who are today in hell. The worst people alive today have grace bestowed on them. Now what they do with it is the next kind of grace. But this kind of grace, even the most depraved, show tiny signs that they have grace in the shape of knowing that they are doing wrong, seeking to hide it, 
pretending not to be as bad as they are, that's grace. In this letter to Titus, Paul said, the grace of God has appeared to everybody, all men. There's the universal grace. Teaching us, he said, that we should live soberly, righteously, <clears throat> and godly in this present age. We instinctively know, uh, maybe dim sense, but we still have a sense of right from wrong. We even have desires we may not completely understand, but desires to be better, to be good, to shape up, to change our ways, to do better. Where does that come from? That's grace. Much of the grace of God is so a part of our existence that I don't think we even recognize it's, it's the grace of God. Where does even common decency, what little bit we have left, it seems like in all our culture, where do even people that deny the existence of God get friendship? The ability to be kind to someone, to fall in love with someone, to care for their children. Where do they get that? It's not in here. It's the grace of God. To even those who reject Him, He pours out grace. And it's universal. So, grace is unconditional. We do nothing to receive it. Nor are we alone. Everyone, everyone has this grace, this kindness that God shows to us. Now what does, how does it function? What does it provide? Prevenient grace awakens us to, again, it may be a dim sense, but there's a God, or people, a power, a supreme being, a something. But the very fact we have a sense that is, by the way, one of the arguments for the existence of God, the philosophers came up with basically five major arguments, philosophical, logical reasonings for the existence of God. One of them is called the moral argument, meaning that universally, people groups, tribes, even those that, as far as we know, have never been touched by what we would call civilization, none of them, there's never been some tribe back in the jungles of the Philippines somewhere, they're atheists. None. There is an innate sense. There's a something out here. They may come up with some of the most strange and grotesque idols and they'll worship a tree or what, 
But the point is, you don't find any people groups who don't have a culture that includes something to worship. And it literally may be nothing but a tree stump. But they will consider that tree stump sacred. So you don't just go sit on it and eat a sandwich. And the tribe picks someone who offers sacrifices to the stump and is the keeper of the stump. There's a concept even of unapproachableness on our part, so we pick someone who can approach on our behalf. There's a dim sense of needing a mediator to represent me before God, which also indicates an innate sense of unworthiness on our part to approach God. All of that comes from the grace of God. It is not self-generated. God gives it to us. He reveals himself in creation. Paul said that. He informs us. He, in, he convicts us. We have a sense of a conscience that certain things are wrong. Now, there's great difference in depending, about, depending on what we know of um, spiritual light. Some know very little, but they know something. I did wrong. Something tells them I'm wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And some also primitive, crude type of redemption is necessary. Something usually has to be sacrificed or something very meaningful to me I have to give away or maybe give to the offended party. But again, there's that fundamental sense of making amends with whoever that God is, be it a stump or God. We know that. That's God. He's put that in our hearts. Our conscience restrains us. Let me just not get off the subject, but just say this. Everyone is asking today in our culture, what is happening? What has happened? It seems like uh, violence and just savagery is being unloosed on us. What are we going to do? Where is this coming from? What's the breakdown? Now, some of the causes that are pointed to are not completely wrong, but they, they miss the mark. Now we're talking, I think rightly, in a certain way, fatherlessness. Yeah. Well, that doesn't help matters. To have no father figure, that's not the reason. There's way, way, way more people without a father figure who don't do the stuff that some do. Where's it coming from? Really, John Adams put his finger on it. He said, our whole system of government assume, assumes 
a religious and moral people. Second sentence, it, our whole system of government, is wholly inadequate for any other kind of people. So really, what's he saying? The external restraints of a system of government are powerless to control and keep intact a society if the inward restraints are abandoned. It's the inward restraint that really keeps, is the glue of a society. There are not enough policemen, there are not enough square feet in any jails all around the world to corral people who don't have that. It's interesting that when God had had it and decreed, I'm going to destroy the earth and all that's in it with the flood. Well, there's two things he did there. One is his righteous judgment because he said, I see their hearts. They're only evil all the time. And then defined it, he said, the whole earth was filled with violence. Yet, what did God say? He was this God who's as long-suffering and kind had had it, but he still said, and he used the word grace, he said, but I'm going to destroy the whole earth, but Noah found grace in God's sight. And then he said, I will give them 120 more years, they live longer then, before I do this. That's grace. Now, he said they had it coming then, but he said, I'll, I'll give them 120 years. That's grace. God draws us, prompts us. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless he's drawn. <clears throat> and all of this has as its aim to save me. I can't do justice to how great God's Grace is to a rebellious people. And how much, how much he's done that we don't deserve. That's enough on the unconditional and universal grace of God. Now the Bible also describes to us another major kind, I guess, or use of of grace and that is alternatively conditional and what we could call particular grace conditional grace means there are certain kinds of benefits and relationship with God that is conditional you meet certain conditions specifically faith and obedience, or you don't get that grace. You don't enjoy that blessing and favor from God. Therefore, it's conditional. 
Now, I'll explain that in a moment. It's also particular, meaning it's not universal, because not everyone has the grace that is only given to those who trust and obey. Not everyone trusts and obeys. And they are then shut out from these works of grace. What, what's the definition here of this kind of grace that is conditional? It requires two things, obedience and faith. There's no such thing as salvation that God's drawing us to without continual trusting and obeying. So there, this grace is conditional. What, what are the effects of this grace? Well, forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. Being born again. Coming into the favor of God. Romans says, we therefore, if we're justified, made right with God through faith, we have peace with God. That peace with God is not a universal benefit of grace. Only those in this whole world who love, trust, obey the Lord enjoy peace with Him. So that's why we can't say that that is universal. It's a universally available, but we know sadly that the majority reject it. The majority refuse to meet the conditions for it. Now, let me just stop for a second. Some who would say, if we are to meet conditions, that's works. That's earning it. That's self, it's bootstrap religion. It's not at all. Here's why. Here's why. It's not of works. It's not of fixing ourselves up. The conditions that God has laid out for us cannot be met in human strength. I don't care how much I may know the requirements. I must forsake sin and trust Jesus to come into my heart, forgive me, make me his child. I may know all of that, but I am powerless to do it because I'm enslaved with sin until, hear me, God's grace that has established the condition operates to enable me to meet the conditions. The fact that it's the grace of God that enables me to repent, enables me to believe, enables me to trust and walk with Him, eliminates merit. It eliminates, and this is why this could sound like straining at a gnat, you don't use, I don't know if anything bad will happen to you, but it's a mistake to use the word attain. It is obtained. Forgiveness of sin, grace with God, peace with God is not attained. Attain has the notion about it of accomplishment, a 
something I, stro- I was striving for and finally climbed that mountain. That's not correct because you and I cannot attain salvation, purity of heart, grace of God. We obtain it by meeting the conditions. And when we meet the conditions, God gives it to us. Yet again, how fair God is that he's the one setting the condition and turns right around and helps me meet it. Now, you can't complain about a God like that. Absolutely, there's no charge that can be laid against him. He says, you do this, you do that, you stop doing this, you start doing that, you forsake sin. Why, I can't. Yes, you can, because he helps me do the very thing he tells me to do. I don't know how to get that across, I guess. There's absolutely... No charge against God at all. If we, therefore, if we don't find ourselves in right relationship with God, we don't take advantage of His grace and His help to meet everything He requires, it is wholly our fault. God's never, ever chargeable. Now, not only is this kind of grace conditional, but it is particular, which to finish that point, unfortunately, Jesus said, few there be that find the way that leads to life. The majority, he said, go on to destruction in the broad and wide way that leads there but it's a matter of choice. Some of the words in one of the songs we sang this morning, notice a couple times, it's accurate. I wondered as we sang them, I wonder if anybody's thinking, what in the world uh, is this accurate? Yeah, it is. When it said, I choose to be holy. Now, it's, we're mistaken if we say, I choose to make myself holy, but I choose to meet the conditions God has laid down for me to be holy. I choose that. I choose to repent, and then he helps me repent. He helps my will. He tugs at my will, informs me that I need to repent. Then he helps me repent, When I say, Lord, I'll repent. I have to watch my time. But it is right for us, even if we feel we don't have the power, the ability, or even the (laughs) the angst of heart to repent, to tell God, I can't conjure that up myself. But if you will grant repentance to me and help me repent, I'll repent. That's exactly, in my case, what I told God kneeling by the side of my bed at 20 years old. I said, Lord, I am a sinner, but I'm not sorry enough to quit. 
But if you'll make me, if you'll help me get to where I'm sick of it and I see it like you see it, I won't leave this room till I'm right with you. I read some scripture that nailed my hide to the wall. I love this about God. You can't find a kinder, gentler, faithful, dear God than we've got. But listen, he'll, he'll poke us and he'll ring our bell good. Why? He has to. He has to get us to the place where we say, Lord, I'm running up the white flag here. I'm tired of rebelling. I'm tired of bucking against your way, your law, your will. It's brought me nothing but trouble. God says, yeah, I know. And you know what else God says? I'm the author of a lot of that trouble. So he afflicts us, then turns around and heals us. Isaiah said, God said, I, bind, I break, I'll break your bones, but I bind up. I wound you, but I heal. All that's grace. Now, the benefits of the kind of grace that God gives to those who love and obey and trust Him. Approval of God, forgiveness of sins, adoption as God's children. He sends, by the way, He sends into our hearts, He said, the Spirit of grace, telling us that we are children of God. We're right with God. That's the doctrine of assurance, another great comforting doctrine that God tells us where we stand with Him. You know, the truth of the matter is, I know we can be confused at times and wonder if we don't uh, know a lot about God and His Word and so forth, but when I've asked a lot of people through the years, where do you, where do you feel you're at with God? Are you right with God? Or some things that are troubling you, you're, you know you're not doing, I, I just don't know. Now, I've never come out of my chair in my office and said, you're a liar. But I've sort of thought it. Ultimately, ultimately, if it's really, really true, that we don't know then we can charge the Holy Spirit whose job it is to tug at every heart. And he's the prosecuting attorney sent from the Father who's the judge. He will read the charges. No one can say, I've watched enough cops. People will always say, I don't care what in the world they were caught doing. What are you arresting me for? Eh, you know. Anybody who says that to the Holy Spirit, Lord, I just don't know what I did. Yeah, you do. You do. Otherwise, we charge the Holy Spirit with malpractice in office. That's what we're ultimately saying. The Spirit of God sent into the world, God said He will convict 
the whole world of sin, righteousness, judgment. Don't anybody tell him, I don't know what I did. How you do? Because he told us. He told us. He informs us. He draws us. He not only forgives us our sins, but he continues to draw the new believer to a second touch from him, a work of grace, and that's purifying our hearts because we have remaining inclination to sin we're born with. Nobody denies that. No branch of Christianity denies that we're born with a bent to sinning. And God wants to rid us of that. Who would, who would, have, who would have a child or a spouse or whatever who was always prone to wandering, to leaving, to rebelling, that have within their hearts something that was the Old Testament, Psalm 51, uses the word crook. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't mean a crook, like Nixon wasn't. Now, that really dates me. But he me it meant bent, like a shepherd's crook. David said, there's a, there's a kink, there's a bent in my heart. And he asked God to take it out. Purge me, he said. Take it away. Now, God doesn't inspire us to pray a prayer that he doesn't intend to answer or couldn't. He tells us in what I read earlier, Titus, Jesus gave himself that he might redeem us from lawless deeds and purify unto himself a special people. So God forgives us, cleanses us. Of course, he helps us. He gives us moment by moment because he's a resident of my heart. Guidance, direction, protection, teaching. He'll lead us into all truth. That grace of God that dwells in our hearts when the spirit of grace lives there is what makes me grow and deepen my faith and helps me get through everything that this life throws at us. And we are, in Hebrews, told, come with boldness to what? the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Now, here's the last thing I want to say about that kind of grace that helps us through hard times. Our illustration among many is Paul. Whatever the thorn in the flesh was that he struggled with physically, some illness, some whatever, we don't know. He says, I begged Jesus, three different occasions to rid me of it. I felt it was hampering my ministry. He said, Jesus finally answered him and said, no, I'm not going to deliver you from it. He said, my grace, that's empowerment, is sufficient for you. So what does Paul do? Here's why he had grace or it would have been withdrawn because he said, I will rejoice then in your will, even though it involves going against my request. I will rejoice in it that in my weakness, you are made strong. If there's not 
acquiescing to the will of God, you don't get any grace to put up with hard things. Refusing to go through something, mad at it. I'm not going to I'm not going to sit still for this. You get no grace. But if we say, thy will be done, God gives us the grace to put up with maybe what we could never do otherwise. Now finally, I need you to summarize this. All this about grace, we need to remember, grace is resistible. It doesn't overpower me. I can stop God's grace. Scripture says that. Paul said, I don't frustrate the grace of God. Stop it. Grace is forfeitable. I can forfeit it and lose my soul forever. Galatians 5, those who turned away from faith in Jesus to being saved by keeping the Jewish law, Paul wrote to them, he said, you have become estranged from Jesus and you have fallen from grace I can forfeit it grace has to be retained by continual trusting and obeying and to retain grace John Wesley said is greater than to obtain it hardly one in three does this Hopefully we can, I hope that wasn't too much of a rambulation. I'd like for us to look at, maybe just before we sing, closing song, Amazing Grace. And if we'll bring that up on the screen. I want to just point out a couple things in that great hymn that are in the scripture here. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, we don't like admitting we're a wretch. You want grace? Then we have to admit, I'm a wretch. I need God, need help. I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's work of grace. That's what God does with grace. Now, this is a good verse. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." That, there's that both sides of grace. It was grace that convicted John Newton a slave ship owner in the slave trade in England. And it was the grace of God to make him so guilty and filled with shame that he was scared to death of God and scared to death of dying. But those same fears when he sought God relieved them. That's grace. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. The moment I believed, it turned. The grace no longer scared me to death, but now favored me, blessed me, comforted me. To many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. There's faith that God will not permit. More than I can bear, he'll get me through it. And then, of course, grace will be the song in heaven on the hearts of everyone who makes it there. I want us to stand and we will sing that well-known hymn in closing.